This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Yesterday, though, uh, city public works crews talked about a number of different things, and we, and we covered a few of those issues on the program yesterday morning. Uh, with uh, well, of course, Chad Collins was uh, on the program and talking about the the money from MetroLink and uh, the Presto cards and bus tickets, etc. And that was a rather contentious issue. But also the Red Hill, uh, which is uh, not a new issue, and uh, there are some grave concerns about what has happened there. We know about the fatalities. We've talked with the families of some of the victims of those fatalities over the last number of years here on the program. And uh, city staff were asked to come back with a report about what might be done and an analysis of some of those statistics. Well, at that meeting yesterday, it was revealed that there are no plans for median barriers as a safety measure, which many people have asked for. But there are some other things that they could be looking at. Councillor Sam Marilla from Ward 4 at East Mountain uh, joins us on the uh, Bill Kelly Show on CHML to talk about this rather contentious issue. Sam, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Listen, you've been pretty vocal about this. Uh, this is right in your backyard, literally, uh, the, the Red Hill portion of this anyway. Uh, and, and you've been pretty uh, pretty upfront about your concerns about this. Talk to us a little bit about what you're hearing from your constituents and how council's responding to it. Okay, so just historically speaking, um, the, the three motions that I brought forward or sponsored um, subsequent to the, a number of deaths and um, uh, on the on the road itself, and then the correlating fiction that was being, I guess, communicated in our community about the fact that the road's unsafe, I thought it was uh, obviously incumbent of us to ensure that through an independent third-party analysis from an engineering standpoint or a scientific standpoint, that the road be assessed accordingly and that the report back to committee and by extension council and the community so that we can dispel any of the uh, fiction that's, that's being communicated and really focus it on the facts. And what, what we learned from those studies, and again, independent third-party um, assessment of the issue, is the fact that human behavior, speed, uh, distracted driving, and even criminal behavior such as drinking and driving have, for the most part, been the significant portion of why these tragedies and or other accidents have occurred. So when you look at uh, the, the way the road was de- designed, the median that presently exists and the, and the design of the median was done so uh, based on the road being used as prescribed. You know, Tylenol is a very safe drug to use, but if used not as prescribed, it can kill you. And if you're going to travel at 160 or 140 kilometers an hour on a road that's designed for 90, the probability is you're either going to get into a collision, kill yourself or someone else. And if the, if the road's being used as prescribed, it is a safe road. The problem is how do we, as a community, and we've seen a significant amount of problems throughout this community, everybody is fast, furious, and in some cases stupid, to a point of nausea when people are racing to stop lights, racing to stop signs, it's not blowing through them. And there's this true um, sense of entitlement behind the wheel that I think has never existed uh, in our society. And when you look just at the drinking and driving uh, numbers going up again, uh, people have to realize that, listen, you have to be held accountable, and all of this can be solved with behavior. And it all starts with you, me, and everyone else around us. So to, to look at the design of the road when science is telling us it's safe and to blame it from anecdotal um, uh, stories is irresponsible. And frankly, 
uh, and we have to be firm on this because we can't just go out and spend tens of millions of dollars or millions of dollars based on anecdotal emotional reactions to something that doesn't exist. Hence, the reason why I sponsored these studies, hence the reason why we're standing firm on the fact that we're not going to spend millions of dollars on a road if used as prescribed is very safe. But is there a road in this city that's being used as prescribed, Sam? Well, I think if we had photo radar, it would be used as prescribed. Until then, uh, you're probably right. There aren't that many. Uh, therein lies the problem. And, and when that happens, and whether we're talking about traffic safety, uh, about public health, which of course is another one of the responsibilities of, of a city council, and a number of other uh, avenues, uh, when these things happen, uh, does council have a responsibility to, well, I'll use a phrase that's probably going to ruffle a few feathers, but what the heck, uh, save themselves from ourselves uh, and, and put laws in place to simply say you can't do that anymore or we have to take mitigating measures? Well, I have many times said of that. Of course you have, yeah, and, the council, and your council has done that. Exactly. And, uh, but again, people like to point fingers. Our society has come to a point where everybody's pointing fingers at everyone else. No one's taking responsibility for their, for their own actions. The bottom line is every time you get behind that wheel, if you're, if you're going to travel the speed limit, the probability is you and everyone else, else around you will be safe. If you're going to get try to get to from point A to point B with no disregard, no regard to anyone else but yourself, you are the problem. And people have to realize that. And until people realize that, I, I don't know what more I or anyone else can say, but to spend millions of dollars just to give an optics of doing something for political purposes and is expedient, sure, but it doesn't do anything. And it's irresponsible because now we've now not only spent the money, but built a barrier that's not even needed. And hence, won't even save any lives. With that in mind, then, what measures can we take? I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with the things that cat, staff are recommending here, Sam. You know, the cat's eyes, which are those things that illuminate at night, uh, right on the middle of the road there, Sam, sure, actually see the lanes. That, that's a great road. idea, super idea. But is it really going to save lives? Bill, I have to interrupt. Another, I apologize. If everyone just simply traveled that road as prescribed, we'd have no problem. It's designed, the median is presently designed to be able to give you enough room to buffer any crossover. So if you're traveling at 90 or even 100 kilometers an hour, you're going to be able to control your vehicle and not be, not be part of a crossover. It's as simple as that. But again, I, I go back to my point. In a philosophical world, you're absolutely right. But in, in reality, people don't do that. And, uh, and you've had to take uh, preventative measures. I mean, I'll use Kenilworth Avenue as an example. I mean, you were one of the first counselors to actually take the stand and reduce the speed significantly on that street because people just weren't obeying the laws that were already in place. And it worked. It actually, we were averaging in around 60 to 80 uh, kilometers an hour, and now they're, they're in and around 50 to 60, which is exactly where we wanted them to be. So, um, yes, there, you have to take sometimes drastic measures, in order to, to affect change. And I, I, I'm not afraid to take those radical steps, regardless of the, the, the lumps along the way. But with that in mind, then, is the, is the staff recommending uh, enough to try to, to reduce the, the fatalities, reduce the, uh, the collisions that are occurring on that road? Are you read taking the, enough preventative measures? Absolutely. Read the reports. But the bottom line, again, everyone's trying to look for a solution outside of themselves. Folks, try with the speed limit, and you'll live. It's really as simple as that. I, I, why is everyone looking for some sort of magical solution to this? Obey the law, and everything will be fine. But, but look, again, you're getting into a philosophical argument, Sam. It's, philosophical. it's, really, it's really practical, Bill. If you travel the speed limit, if you, don't, if you obey the law, then the problem is solved. 
But I'm not sure. What, if we start putting up barriers and then saying, oh, we have a barrier, I'm not traveling 160 kilometers an hour, what, what message is that that we're sending people? Suddenly, we're, we're trying to, firstly, it doesn't even, even make the road safer, and that's what the engineers are saying. And secondly, we're giving a false sense of security to those that believe they can travel 150 when it's only 90. It was designed for 90 kilometers an hour. End of story. Travel with that speed limit. That's it. And if you don't like the road, get off of it. Yeah, okay, well, that's fine. So with that in mind then, uh, is the city staff now under the direction of council going to go and take those concrete barriers out of the bends on the road and the Sherman access and the Claremont access because they were put there to separate one line of traffic from another because entirely of the possibility of accidents? Entirely different analogy, and I'll explain why. There is no design to prevent any sort of buffering between traffic going downbound or upbound. So there it does make perfect sense because... You don't have that. It's not designed to have that buffer. If you travel up the Red Hill, you have a huge median, a grassy median that dips, which gives you enough time if traveling the speed limit to not only slow down, but correct you correct your vehicle to get back onto the road safely. The Kenilworth access and others, and I believe there, there should be one on the Jolly Cut. That one makes sense because there's no way, there's no, it's not designed to, be, to have a buffer. It's direct vehicle to vehicle, downbound, upbound. That we need to assess. But not not one a road that's already taken into account the crossover scenario. But if you use a road not as prescribed, then obviously it's not going to work accordingly. And not, neither will a barrier. If you're traveling at 160 kilometers an hour and you hit a barrier, I don't see that ending well either. So I'm not sure why people are just well, the, the number that I saw yesterday when I talked to Dan McKinnon about this, Sam, was, uh, and and he talked, as, as you referred to, the number of collisions uh, that occur there and the number of, of, of problems that can happen here. Uh, and it's it's not as much as some of the roads. We get that. Numbers are numbers. But the reality is, is when there is a head-on collision as a result of somebody crossing that medium, which isn't long enough and it doesn't seem to stop people, they die 90% of the time. There's a fatality. That's That's something that we need to address. And the same could be said for perhaps other roads throughout the province. But does it, what they did say is that out of the, um, the percentage, it was, I believe, 0.4% of the collisions. So do you spend millions of dollars for 0.4% of the collisions is really the issue. But more, most importantly, if, if the person wasn't traveling or distracted in any way, or wasn't speeding, or wasn't um, drinking and driving, or using cannabis and driving, then these issues wouldn't exist. So again... You, you, you can't for, uh, design a road to be infallible. You can, however, correct behavior through education, you would hope, and that people take responsibility of their own actions to protect themselves from themselves. But there are two two parties when there's a head-on collision. And, and, and one, you're absolutely right, one may be disobeying a law, one may be going too fast, one may be under the influence, or texting or doing whatever, but there oftentimes is an innocent victim on the other side of that road that oftentimes ends up dying as a result of this. When you ricochet off of a barrier onto the, un- the vehicles behind you, it's not going to end well either. The bottom line is... No, a collision's a collision. I don't disagree with the you there. The bottom line is everyone's trying to find some sort of magical solution. I, like, it's, not, it's not that easy. It's a very complex scenario. But no, no, I don't think anybody's suggesting it's easy. No, no, but again, everyone's looking for that easy answer. Build a barrier, everything will be fine. It's not true. The science tells you that. Now, slow down to and, and use the road that's prescribed? Yes, that's the answer. And everyone seems to be ignoring the only answer that actually exists. But even staff yesterday, and when I had Dan McKinnon on the program yesterday, Sam, he seemed to reiterate this, 
that he wasn't saying he was opposed to the idea of barriers. He just said, well, it, it we cost ineffective to do it at this stage because we're probably going to expand the road. And I said, well, really, when are you going to do that? Well, they don't know. So it might be 10 years, it might be 20 years, we what don't know. What they said was the science doesn't justify it. But sure, if there's political will to do it, to be expedient, go for it. That's what he's basically saying, and that's what they reemphasized yesterday. And if you're telling me that as a taxpayer you want us to spend money just to look good, no, that's nonsense. No, I think the people that are making that call are the ones that want to save lives. It's not a matter of looking good. No, no. no it's about having a false sense of security, and that's what, that's what exa- the science is telling you, Bill. The wall is not necessary. If we build it to say that we're saving lives, then that's spending money for political expediency. So I've been around a long time, Bill, and so have you. You know the game, and we, you, I'd be the first one to stand up and say, let's build this wall. Let's spend $20 million. We're going to save one. You can pull up Donald Trump on this all day long. Build the wall. The reality is, it the science tells you it's not going to do anything. Then why the other enhancements, then? Well, obviously, the other enhancements, firstly, can be an enhancement to... to, to provide a better road, but it's not going to, in itself, prevent any collision. It's going to have another layer of a safety issue to give a sense of better visuals along the road. But nowhere along in those reports, that say, any of those enhancements is going to prevent any tragedy on that road. One thing that will is, is actually traveling the speed limit. But then, but then, we here's the thing about city staff, and and I know you defend them when they need defending, and you 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 criticize them when they need you criticizing, and way, that's and that's you your come job. A long way along those fronts. Remember, back in the day, everyone thought I, all I did was attack staff. Well, exactly. Well, you know, we we all get wiser as we get older. Most of us should, anyway. Either that, or they did. <laughs> <laughs> but here's but <laughs> point taken. But but the rea- the reality here, Sam, is that in circumstances like this, staff always say everything is fine until the point where council says, "I don't think it is. We need to find a different solution." And then all of a sudden, they pull one out of their back pocket. But Bill, we asked those questions. That's why I asked for the reports. Okay, so just let's let's go back to how this all started. We had a lot of anecdotal. A lot of anecdotal stories being thrown around, and we, we said, "Listen, there's a, let's get rid of all the all the fiction that exists, and let's focus in on the facts. Let's get an independent third party assessment of the issue itself. That's been that's been done. So, from an engineering, from a scientific perspective, they've determined that the design of the road is not a problem. Check that. They've determined that behavior, driver behavior, and or speeding, distracted driving, criminal behavior, all of those elements have." to the vast majority of these collisions. So when you when you take away all of the when you take away all the fiction and you, you're just dealing with the facts, the road as prescribed is a safely designed road. I'm not sure how much more clear anybody can be. And that's what the reports state. We're not talking politics, we're talking science. They're engineers. I don't have a pinky ring. You don't have one, but they do, and I trust their judgment. Well, uh, this is going to obviously uh, be debated again at council next week. We'll see what uh, the, your colleagues have to say about this. Sam, always a pleasure. Always candid comments. Appreciate the time today. Likewise, sir. Take care. Take care. Sam Rule of the Councilor for Ward 4. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The Ontario government has announced that they will be spending $784 million this year to build and renovate 79 schools across the province. Well, uh, that perked up the ears of an awful lot of people in this city because the first question, obviously, is, well, how much of that's going to Hamilton? And uh, what are the possible uses for it? Todd White is the chairman of the board uh, for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. He's also the trustee for Ward 5 for that uh, agency. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to give his take. How are you doing today, Todd? 
Very well. Good morning, Bill. Good. I'm always so, happy to talk about money we receive. Exactly. <laughs> when you get a minister that says, hey, I got this big check here, who's uh, who's in? Uh, you guys are jumping up and down like everybody else. Uh, did, did you know this announcement was coming? Yes. Yeah, so this is the result of the 2017 uh, capital submissions that all boards were able to uh, send in their lists. Boards were able to send in, I think, up to 10 projects. We submitted seven. Um, not that we didn't want more money, but we wanted to be focused in terms of the, the major priorities that we have. So this is the result of that. We haven't learned yet specifically um, what our share is, um, but from conversations and feedback we've received so far, we know that uh, there's quite a bit uh, set aside for Hamilton. Uh, now, you've identified projects. Are you at liberty to talk about what they might be? Yeah, so these are projects that... Uh, throughout the entire city of Hamilton, uh, they're all public and have mainly are uh, mainly are a result of some of those accommodation review processes. So four of the projects are a result of the review we did at Ancaster last year, uh, affecting the schools Rousseau, C.H. Bray, Ancaster Senior, and the new Beverly School uh, out in that area. Um, we also have the Sir John A. Macdonald uh, hub, so to speak which includes the Hess Street School, um, possible rebuild along with the uh, Strathcona School. And then there also are a couple of additions that we've applied for uh, throughout the board. And of course, there still is uh, our Sherwood business case on that list that we're hoping the ministry will uh, give some attention to. Let's talk a little bit about the Sherwood case for a second, and then we'll get into some of the other uh, projects that you've you've got on the docket right now. Uh, Sherwood has been a very contentious area for quite some time. I, I go back, I was just a kid in school, but I remember when Sherwood opened. Uh, and then it was on the chopping block, and they were going to close it, and there was a big pushback from parents, and uh, there's been some reconsideration. And, and i, I got to tell you, I, I've had a lot of discussion with people in, from the Halton Board, Todd, over the last couple of years, because they're mm. going through their high school review now, their accommodation review. And, and, and I, I, I explained to them, I, I said, there's always hope about these things, because I said, look at the Hamilton Board. I mean, you guys have uh, have made decisions on this. I mean, you, you know, you've gone and made some of the tough calls on this. But you've remained open-minded about this, and in some cases, gone back and looked at this a little bit later on, and said, "Well, maybe, maybe there's something different we can do." Well, and then that's exactly it. So, in the Sherwood case, back in I think it was 2012, 2013, we decided obviously to keep the school open. The school isn't in very good shape, unfortunately. Um, we've done a number of studies on that school, and we've been told that it actually costs more money to renovate it completely than rebuild it. So as a result, um, we focused our efforts on trying to attract ministry dollars for that project. We as a board have put aside uh, just under $10 million of our own funds. We're asking them to top up the rest. But ideally for that school at this point, what we'd like to do is rebuild it in the field on the same property, uh, a brand new school, and then just swap the green space with the, uh, the existing building. So that's the, uh, that's the plan for Sherwood. It's been in the queue for some time now. We've submitted that project at least four or five times now. Uh, we've been turned down each time, um, citing that uh, they'd like to see some progress with the new Henderson High School, as well as uh, some movement from the former Barton property that we continue to own that are hosting those students 
for the future Henderson. All right, so what's the status on the Henderson project? So so we are uh, right now breaking ground for uh, the spring. Unfortunately, our original hope as we put all our resources and uh, into those discussions, hoping to break ground before winter. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. So we're looking at spring of, of 2018, uh, probably with an opening sometime during the 2019-2020 school year. All right, and just to remind our listeners uh, about location, 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 which is so very important in this, uh, the uh, the Sherwood School that we're talking about, for those who may not know, may be new to the, uh, that, that's basically over on the East Mountain, and it's uh, actually just beyond the tree line and a couple of houses, just uh, as you go in that traffic circle before you get down the Kenilworth Access, that's the property for Sherwood. Uh, and actually, it's going to be closer to the Brow now because you're going to build on that empty field, correct? And that's right, and it's a beautiful neighborhood, beautiful piece of property that we own. So that was the decision a number of years ago, as you described, location, location, location. And at the end of the day, uh, we heard from the communities, and that was the one that was chosen. Uh, there were some tough decisions there, but actually in this term, uh, with our current board of trustees, we decided to retain the Hill Park property for some alternate uses. So we have that identified as a future high school site, um, even though it was, but uh not to be short-sighted, sell the properties and then scramble a decade from now, um, we retain that as well. So we're really thinking long-term in terms of these, uh, all of these projects. Talk to us about the Hill Park site, because another one that uh, was a very controversial decision at that time by that board, uh, what changes, what, what criteria changes that, that would cause a board to say, let's rethink this? Because in, in the Sherwood case and the Hill Park case, there's, there's been a change in mindset about those properties. Well, that's right. And I think when you close those schools, on paper, it looks like, uh, for instance, there's been some cost savings. You can reallocate some dollars as a result. But then you look at the properties, and when it comes to selling them, I think uh, our board looked at it and said, no way. This is one of the best pieces of property in the city. Uh, if we sell it now, we'll never have uh, a footprint back in that area. And it's central. It's, it's easily accessible. So let's find a way, uh, in a cost-neutral perspective, to relocate some of our existing services to that site, keep it alive um, as long as we need. And then when the populations bounce back and we need a new high school, there's a future Hill Park ready to go. See, this has always been the criticism I've had about the current system, and it's not just your board, it's the Catholic board, it's, and it's just right across the province, is, is they'll look at some of those schools where enrollment is going down and say, well, uh, it's about time to shut things down because uh, we, we don't see that they, you know it's cost-efficient. But you've seen this happen, Todd, where neighborhoods rejuvenate. Uh, you know, people will move out, uh, they become empty nesters, and they'll move to a different uh, area, and young families move in there, and the first thing they're saying is, well, where are the schools? And, uh, and there are some board decisions in the past that have been sensible about this. I think the what Burkholder School uh, around East 24th and, uh, and Franklin Road uh, was a classic example of that, where I think they leased it out to somebody else uh, mm-hmm. for a few years. And then when the need was there again, they just said, okay, we want the property back now. So that's exactly. happened. But once it's knocked down and you've sold it, you're, 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 you're toast. You can't do much about it. That's right, especially in these dense urban areas. Sir Johnny McDonald's a good example of that as well. That high school will close in June of 2019. Um, but as you can see with our community hub proposal on that site, um, giving up that property, once again, we'll never make it downtown and, uh, and find, you know, four acres to build. Well, that site's eight acres, but for an elementary school, if you could even find four, it'd be a miracle, not let alone, you know, eight. So we know that we have to make some of those smart decisions and long-term planning decisions. We're actually having the conversation right now. We've never had the conversation uh, since I've been there uh, in the past eight years. 
but we've we have designated growth sites, but they're all in suburban urban areas outside of the city. Um, we're actually now looking at a strategy within the urban boundary downtown on the mountain east west where we can make sure we retain at least one property in each of those quadrants um, for those eventual population shifts we also look at the existing buildings to see if can we put additions on them if necessary some buildings unfortunately are landlocked or can't accommodate an, uh, uh, an addition so we really have to look long term and we're finally having those discussions now because as we finish these review uh, reviews of these areas, you could put yourself in a pretty tough spot. And I think the, the glaring one that you know <laughs> as well as everyone else, and just use Scott Park uh, example as uh, a short-term, uh, short-sighted decision. Yeah, that raised a little controversy. <laughs> More than once <laughs> when yeah, they so. when they closed it when they tried to reopen it uh, and then there's, there's a whole bunch of state that's in the stadium precinct for uh, the, those that need their uh, their memory tweaked on that and you don't want to go down that road again that uh, that was that was a pretty ugly time for the board and for the city and for everyone that was involved in that process but that's the right. John A site which is right downtown is, is interesting because the board made a decision about that high school and and you and I have talked about this and we've agreed to disagree I still I think it was the wrong decision then. Mm-hmm. But from a real estate standpoint, that is one of the most sought-after properties in the city. And, I mean, you guys own that. I mean, you don't want to relinquish that no matter what. No, no, no. And this is where, looking at that decision, it's, it's, it's foolish to say that we should abandon that property and abandon our education presence there. I mean, in terms of, of communities, community need, um, the population in that area, the services they should require, if we were to close, you know, and abandon that property, um, all we'd have left is the Hess Street property, which is probably about an acre and a half with no green space. I mean, what we're trying to do is create a future there and uh, complement the community that surrounds it. The worst thing we could do is just pick up and leave from that area. Um, so we're trying to, you know, breathe some new uh, life into that uh, into that property, and it's eight acres. So. We don't want to necessarily do it alone. Um, we want to do it with a number of other partners that we've identified. So if we can pull that business case together and, the minis- and get ministry funding, which is a possibility in this co- upcoming round or through further funding between now and the provincial election, um, there's some really, really fantastic things that we could pull off. Well, and that's already happened. I mean, for those that have lived in the downtown area, uh, Sir Johnny has been a de facto community hub already. Uh, I mean, the theater there has been used by other groups, not just with the school. Uh, the Hamilton Track Club works out of there from time to time, and, and that's been a huge, huge asset to a number of uh, new Canadians and, and kids that live in, in that area. It gives them a, a, an opportunity to be part of something like that. So, I mean, that, that's already happened. So, you really, you're carrying on a tradition that's started some time ago. Exactly. And those are kind of community hubs that have, have kind of evolved over the years, kind of uh, ad hoc uh, kind of hubs, so to speak. This, uh, if we created, for instance, a purpose-built community hub with you know a dozen partners in mind, facility-wise or program-wise, uh, wise we could create something far greater than even those examples that, that that you've described. So that's really our goal. We're thinking bigger than big to simply pull off uh, um, a project there um, that, as a board alone, we couldn't accomplish. Well, what's the time frame now? I mean, the board made, or not the board, but the, the province, the minister made the announcement about this money that's going to be available. Uh, you've, you've, you've put the ask in right now. Do you get any sense at all as to whether or not they're going to start doling the cash out anytime soon? 
Yeah, so so we believe that uh, the ministry has a lot of money set aside for us in this upcoming announcement. We don't know um, for sure which projects will receive the funding. In terms of the hub, it could be announced in uh, this next round of funding, um, site-specific, that is, later this month. Or um, there's because it's a hub and there's so many ministries involved and other organizations, it could be some type of multi-announcement um, sometime between now and perhaps the, the election. But we don't know. Um, hopefully it will be one of the two. If it's not one of the two, then obviously the project um, will lose some momentum. But uh, our hope and our push at this time is, is one of those two opportunities between now and uh, May. Not a bad guess. Uh, governments uh, tend to want to uh, to make a big-time announcements, a big spending announcements just before a vote. Uh, that, that seems to be a track record for them. That's right. And like we always say at HWDSB, there isn't a provincial check we can't cash. <laughs> Todd, good luck with this. Uh, appreciate the update this morning. Appreciate it, Bill. Have a great one. Todd White, uh, Chairman of the Board for the Hamilton Board of Education. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Here's the question a couple of weeks ago, whether or not social media should play a part in upcoming elections. I, that's probably an outdated question. The fact is they already do have a, a major impact. Part in, in, in factoring into this, and and have for for you know the last couple of elections. But how far do you go down that road, and and just how much influence should be allocated to social media? And and it's it's I think fair to say that an awful lot of people are a little bit skeptical and rather guarded about this now. Well, for instance, because of the ongoing investigation that's happening in the last uh, U.S. presidential election, and the impact that social media and Facebook and Twitter may have had on that. Not in necessarily getting people to vote, but in influencing certain areas. And I know that some people rather naively say, well, that couldn't have happened for a voting block as big as the United States. But you don't have to get everybody on side to alter a vote. Anyway, joining us to talk about this whole uh, phenomenon is uh, Simon Kiss, Professor of Journalism and Leadership at Wilfrid Laurier University. Simon, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. I, I guess uh, too much of a good thing can be somewhat problematic. Uh, are we right and justified in being skeptical about the role that uh, that social media and, and, and Facebook and Twitter and others could play in elections? Absolutely, we should be skeptical. Um, I'm not entirely sure that we should be so concerned about uh, this story about uh, their role in uh, organizing uh, leaders' debates in Canada. Uh, I think we should be more concerned about the role that they play in disseminating uh, false uh, or misleading information. Therein lies the problem, and, and, and I think that's well-founded as to exactly how that information gets out there, who, I, I guess, analyzes the information, first of all, and, and maybe more importantly, who consumes it. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly the story. I mean, I think the story uh, today about um, that, that the Toronto Star kind of published about uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook wanting to be at the table as, as a new policy for running leaders' debates uh, is developed is I think what Facebook and Twitter would want is that I think that they would primarily want the feed of the leaders' debate in any future elections so that um, people could essentially watch it via Facebook or Twitter. Um, I think the concern about you know what we call fake news is about uh, the extent to which um, Facebook and Twitter are able to or are obligated to uh, kind of label or warn people about. Uh, uh, news that is that is sort of suspicious uh, and, and do some vetting that we expect regular media to do. 
We're not ready. We're not that intersection yet, are we, Simon, where social media is simply going to take these over? In other words, if you wanted to view the debate, you'd have to go onto social media. I know that some people look at television as a rather outdated medium, and we can have that debate, I suppose. But the reality is I think it's still an effective tool for certain demographics. Yeah, yeah, we're not there yet, but it certainly looks like we're headed that way. I mean, I don't have a cable subscription if I wanted to watch the leaders' debate. Um, I don't know how I would do it, honestly. I don't uh, have a, an over-the-air antenna anymore. Um, uh, I probably would have to kind of uh, go online anyway and stream it from, from CBC's website or uh, something like that and stream it to my TV. Um, well, wasn't that the that problem said, last the last time with the debate here? Because the major networks didn't follow through, and, and it was kind of a piecemeal television uh, coverage of, of the debates, and there were a lot of Canadians that didn't have access to it. So that's... I mean, that's that's partly right, and that's uh, partly one of the reasons, I think, why, um, uh, well, I think people have been frustrated with uh, television networks in the past and how they've conducted uh, uh, debates, and partly about uh, decisions that they made about who gets in and who doesn't. Yeah. Um, and uh, people have kind of, you know, asked fair questions about why it is that, you know, unelected conglomerates like uh, uh, Bell and uh, who owns CTV and uh the other major networks sort of are the ones at the, the table uh, saying, you know, okay, Elizabeth May and the Greens, you're in, you're out. Uh, the block is in or the block is out. Um, so people have fairly asked questions about, about why it's those networks that get to make those decisions. So I think that's really what's driving um, the, the, the move to kind of have a, um, a, a kind of a debates commission to set some transparent uh, rules in advance about who gets in and who gets out. And uh, I think it's fair. I think it's fair to have to to actually have Facebook and Twitter kind of at that table, um, given that that people are headed that way. Well, and the networks, the television networks, in in their own way, have tried to incorporate uh, the person on the street questions in some of these things. You know, now we're going to go to you know to, to Simon in in KW, and there's a videotape question there, and 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 that was fine. But I mean, I think we've we've moved way past that now, where. Whereas putting something on Instagram or on Twitter is is far more immediate, uh, but is there a concern about what's going to be allowed there and, and and how those those are going to be incorporated into those debates? Not really. I all of these debates, the content will be. Um, I mean, you have to distinguish between uh, you know the, the the way the debate is going to be broadcast and then what exactly is going to be broadcast and the format the debate will be conducted and. Uh, I it's strange credulity for me. You know, it's pretty tough to imagine somehow that inviting Twitter and Facebook to the table to make the guidelines about how the debate is going to be conducted is somehow going to open up space for a, a Russian debate bot to pose um, misleading questions um, in a debate. Uh, that not, I don't really think that's that's a concern. I, I think the the content and the format will always be mediated and moderated. You know, probably they'll do a pretty good job. I think the real question here is, um, you know, are these debates going to be streamed over which, uh, you know, which which media are going to have access to the feed? Who's going to be at the table making decisions about who gets in the debate? And how many there will be and, and, and that kind of thing. I like the fact that we're having this discussion almost two years out from the next election about this format, because it seemed as if they did everything at the 11th hour last time, which is why it probably fell apart. Yeah, well, I think that in the last election, what really happened was that uh, I think it was really McLean's that kind of went ahead and yeah. uh, partnered with YouTube and basically said, you know, we're sick and tired of being at the, the mercy of the broadcast networks, three companies, three corporations 
sitting down and making decisions and uh, deciding who's in, who's out, deciding when they're going to be, how many they're going to be. And the technology is right there for the taking for any media outlet, uh, be it Facebook, be it Twitter, be it uh, McLean's, a, a magazine that has a strong digital presence, to basically say, to heck with you guys, we're, we're, uh, we're going to stream it in our own way and we're going to come up with our own format and party leaders can come if they want to or they don't want. So they just did an end run around the broadcast networks. That's happened, so that's going to happen again, and that's why you know this discussion needs to happen now, um, and not uh, in the middle of the next election. It should be an easier discussion, Simon. You would think this time around, uh, because uh, even even if the leaders themselves, and uh, you know, there's a younger generation of leaders on the national level now. Uh, all of a sudden, Justin Trudeau is the senior guy in in, in that group. Uh, notwithstanding Elizabeth May, who's who's been around a little bit longer than than the others, but uh, when you look at guys like Jamit Singh and, and Andrew Shear, they should be, if they aren't already, uh, well tuned into social media and how to use it. Again, from the perspective of the leaders, you know whether the debate is going to be broadcast over Facebook or Twitter, it's not really going to make much of a difference. The bigger question that the leaders are going to want to think about uh, is whether, and, and I'll just, you know, we can come right down to brass tacks. The bigger question is going to be whether the Bloc Québécois and the Green Party are at the, the, the debate yep. and how, how those rules are going to be formulated. Is it going to be, do you have to have one seat in the House of Commons? If so, that means the Greens get in. It also means the Bloc gets in. Um, do you have to be official party status to get in? Well, that means that in a future election, when the ND, you know, if the NDP kind of uh, uh, has a poor election result, then a, a party with a, a long history and tradition in Canada might not make it into the, the debate um, one time. So it's, you know, the, the rules that are going to be formulated, you know, the, the considerations that people like Jamit Singh and Shear and Trudeau will be taking will not, will, will not be about how do I appear on Facebook versus how do I appear on camera. The debate questions are going to be the debate questions. The real strategic questions are going to be, uh, do the Bloc and the Greens get in, and how do we formulate those rules uh, uh, for the, the current situation and going forward? And, and maybe the first question in that debate is, well, who gets to make the decision ultimately? Well, that's exactly what's being discussed right now. And uh, that's exactly what's being discussed right now. And the Liberals have a, a proposal, I guess, in their last platform to improve the decision-making process on this, to say to set up kind of a, not kind of, I, I, I guess they want a nonpartisan debate commissioner. So, so you might imagine this might be like an officer of parliament, like the chief electoral officer, mm-hmm. um, to to be accountable to parliament and, and have uh, that person sort of set down guidelines about whether it has to be a certain vote share or a certain seat in the House of Commons or whatever. Um I think that probably will, will come. Officers of Parliament are useful to politicians when they can't agree amongst themselves about what the rules should be to um, to kind of uh, to play the role of, re- of referee. Um, that's why we've seen a proliferation of officers of Parliament uh, in the last uh, in in the last twenty years. It would make all kinds of sense, really, wouldn't it, Simon? Because if if it does get political, oh, we want to send this off to a committee. Uh, you know, we're going to have the same result as we did with uh, the government's promise to to move in towards electoral reform. I mean, how did that work out? Uh, you know, it just as soon as they start getting behind committee doors, there, uh, everything just seems to fall apart, and partisan politics seems to rule the day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, the, the you know having the broadcast networks worked make the rules work reasonably well for the many years when 
you know, there was no challenge from, say, a Green Party or a Bloc, and, uh, you know, where the three parties, the, the Tories, the uh, the Liberals, and the NDP were kind of the dominant players. That worked reasonably well. Obviously, all that exploded, and so, um, and the media landscape exploded, and so you kind of had to bring some new players to the table, and, and uh, having a kind of a nonpartisan debates commissioner uh, sort of lead that discussion is going to be useful to everybody. It's going to make a lot of sense. As an observer, Simon, what did you think about the process itself uh, the last time around, and, and perhaps the possibility of expanding that? I mean, you, you talked about the old days. Uh, there was usually just two debates. There was an English-language debate and a French-language debate, and that was pretty much it. Uh, but but to expand that and to have different debates about different topics and focus on different things, I thought it went pretty well. I mean, it was in its its early stages, of course, with the last election, but should that be continued? Is, are there ways to improve that, that, that process and that protocol? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like that. It gives, uh, um, it gives, uh, voters the chance to see in-depth discussion on topics. Like, uh, I think there was one debate at the U of T that was specifically focused on, uh, foreign policy. Um, so, you know, it's, it's fine. The challenge there is, you know, selecting which issues get a selected, uh, debate uh, is kind of a political issue in and of itself, right? Um, so, I mean, back in the 80s, there was, at, at the height of the uh, organized uh, feminism, uh, there actually was a, a, a debate set aside for women's issues. Um, uh, but, you know, somebody who's, say, a poverty activist, uh, or somebody who's concerned about the environment, or um, uh, other sort of healthcare might say, well, hang on a second, you know, I want to hold debate about my issue, right? So it's good in that it can allow for greater in-depth discussion, but it it raises a whole, it opens up a whole new Pandora's box then about which topics kind of get their own debates. How far do we take this? Uh, we talked about the distinction at the beginning of our conversation here between the debates themselves and the actual electoral process and electoral campaigns. Uh, and I agree with you. I don't think there's a, there's a great deal of concern about the debate process. Uh, but we do have some, I think, some trepidation about the impact that, uh, that things like Twitter, uh, Facebook, and others can have on the campaigns themselves. And there, and there are allegations about what happened in the U.S. federal election. And, and we've heard anecdotally that there, there seems to be at least some uh, modicum of evidence that that might have happened in, in the Canadian election and in other elections. Uh, uh, so, so obviously there's a, there's a Pandora's box there. Or are we making too much of this? You know, I haven't heard any solid evidence that, that this played any kind of a role in Canada and uh, even in the United States. Um, you know, the most recent study that I saw actually found that, that most what we call fake news reached people that had already been committed voters uh, anyway. So, um, uh, you know, when you put the fake news up against the fact that Hillary Clinton didn't run an inspiring campaign, didn't campaign in Michigan or Wisconsin, and the fact that, uh, you know, the fact that um, we just followed eight years of Democratic government, of, a, of the Democrats sort of running the White House, which kind of leads to a desire for kind of change, you know, the fake news thing on social media maybe looks not as uh, big of a deal. That said, uh, it is true that um, foreign governments did mount organized campaigns to try to disseminate false and misleading information in the middle of uh, an election uh, campaign and uh, election campaigns are uh, absolutely fundamental to um, building and maintaining trust and legitimacy in p- 
politicians being allowed to make binding decisions for all of us. And we you know, broadly accept the decisions that politicians make because we broadly accept that the process was fair. If you uh, chip away at that trust, it does, doesn't really take long um, for that legitimacy to kind of wither away, and, and, and that, can, that can lead to not really that good places. So um, it is something that we should uh, take seriously. It's, it's going to be interesting to see as this evolves, and, and, and I'm sure that whatever happens with the investigation south of the border is obviously going to have an impact. Uh, and, and you may be right, uh, because we've heard anecdotal stuff. There have been charges that have been laid. It uh, depends on, on which, which social media platform you want to read right now as to whether or not there's any legitimacy to those accusations at this stage. Uh, some are suggesting that there's no way, for instance, that, uh, that Facebook ads that were purchased by the Russians... I uh, could have had an influence on that. But again, then those who want to believe that can say, well, you don't have to influence the whole country. You just have to strategically go into some place in Michigan and Pennsylvania and influence a few things. But then the corollary, I guess, to that is, does that make it believable, though, even if you do that? or Because, uh, I mean, if you look at some of the back and forth on, for instance, Facebook uh, posts, there's an awful lot of people that, that use those posts to simply disagree with everything. So that creates a discussion and a debate. Do people simply look at that stuff and, and take it at face value? I'm not so sure that happens now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think all of this is kind of up for debate, and I think we're kind of learning about how people uh, uh, consume information on uh, online and uh, how they can engage in kind of persuasion. Um, you know, uh, like I said, I think it's something that we need to take seriously. There is evidence that a foreign government did try to intervene purposefully. It's possible. Um, I just think that set against kind of other factors, it, uh, this has been... Um, uh, I, I'm not sure Donald Trump is in the White House because of the Russian campaign of misinformation, let's put it that way, on, on Facebook. Um, I actually think the bigger deal was not so much the misinformation uh, on, say, Facebook and Twitter. I actually think the bigger deal was the fact that they hacked into the Democratic uh, emails and leaked that information. That stuff dribbled out on social media and on uh, traditional media and may have very well have given voters pause to, uh, to, to, to support Hillary Clinton, may have made sort of some people a little um, less inspired to get out and vote for her um, uh, or, or, or maybe switch to Trump. Um, so that's not strictly the fake news, right? That's, uh, that's different. That's, uh, that's actual, um, kind of criminal undertakings to, to steal and, and disseminate private information. Um, so it's related, that's related to the fake news, but that's different. Um, you know, that's actually more a little bit akin to kind of what we had in Guelph in Canada with the, the robocalls, um, right? Uh, where, where people were kind of sending information about, uh, what was it, um, false uh, polling station locations, right? Um, and, and Mr. Del Maestro actually uh, was, was convicted of that. And you have, you know, people will say, oh, that's only one, one constituency, only one riding. The Harper government would have been elected anyway. But, you know, like I said, to, to ensure that voters trust the system and that they respect it, you have to hit that stuff hard. You cannot let uh, violations of, of that process uh, go with a slap on the wrist. You, you know, that's like the tax system. You know, if people stop trusting that your tax dollars are collected fairly and and uh, and used fairly, um, people start withholding taxes, and then we're in a whole lot of trouble trying to pay for the things that we need. You have to hit that stuff hard and hit it early so that people um, trust that that the the, the process 
uh, is, is fair and legitimate. Simon, thanks as always. Great to uh, get your input into this. I appreciate the time today. Great. I enjoyed the conversation. Have a good day. You too. Simon Kiss is a professor of journalism and leadership at Wilfrid Laurier University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.